Band Radio app. And now the role of African American women in the civil rights movement. Over the next hour, University of Delaware professor Tiffany Gill describes how women organized sit-ins, voter registration drives, and boycotts, and how beauty parlors functioned as their safe place. This is from our weekend series, Lectures in History. All right, good afternoon. Um, We're at the point in the semester we have been looking at the long history of African Americans since the Civil War. We've looked at the long struggle for what historian um, Hassan Jeffries calls freedom rights, right? We've been looking at this quest for economic, social, and political self-determination, for educational access and equity. And we're looking at this long quest for the full realization of freedom and citizenship. And so we're getting to the point in the semester where we're talking about the civil rights movement. We've been looking at that for a couple of sessions now. And, and the interesting thing about teaching the civil rights movement is that it's, it's perhaps the era that most Americans think they know the most about, right? And we've talked a little bit about this, and we'll talk some more about this. Um, that, you know, just because folks think that they can quote a few sentences from Martin Luther King's speech in Washington or know a little bit about Rosa Parks's um, civil disobedience on the bus and have some sense and, and, and even have some visual images in our mind, right, of of people being brutalized by fire hoses and dogs, right? There's a real kind of visual narrative that comes to all this. We often think that we know a lot about this movement. And so one of the challenges for those of us that are learning the movement and connecting it to this much longer history of black activism is that there's almost a point at which we have to unlearn some stuff before we have to learn some stuff, right? Um, and, and that's what our reading for today, Charles Payne's A View from the Trenches, is helping us do, right? So if you have that on, on your computer or on your, your handout, I think it would be a good idea for us to look at it. Um, because one of the main things that we're going to do, our main point today, is to look at what Charles Payne calls the master narrative of the movement. And what we're going to do is, is, is begin to establish and look at what some of the major tropes and issues are in terms of what this master narrative is, um, think a little bit about why this master narrative has endured and, and what kind of purpose it serves for us even five, six decades since the height of the civil rights movement. But more importantly, we're going to um, kind of um, reassemble the narrative or recenter the narrative, moving away from this master narrative to a, a narrative that's much more inclusive, a narrative that is going to center, um, in our case today, black women in the civil rights movement. Right. So. So but before we do that, what let's talk about what Payne calls the master narrative of the movement. OK. So, so what is the master narrative of the movement? What are some of the components that Charles Payne is getting us to think about, about what the master narrative is of when we think of the civil rights movement? What are some of those components? Yeah. Um, he's really focusing on, well, like the kind of like mainstream idea is the national movement, like March on Washington, Martin Luther King, mm-hmm. kind of like the more popular ideas. And Payne is kind of asking us to look at the local struggle and like, uh, specifically, like more local communities, what they did for mm-hmm. the movement. Right. So one major component of this master narrative is a focus on the civil rights narrative from a national perspective and not a local one. Good. Any other components? Yeah. It's also like a very non-complicated narrative. So um, there's like a sympathetic federal government. Everyone kind of comes to the conclusion that racism is wrong at the same time. Mm-hmm. Right. So there's a sympathetic government um, and and almost a very it, it, it minimizes the intensity of struggle and it minimizes the intensity of opposition to the movement right there's a way that through this master narrative of the movement which has really been passed down in terms of how the movement was remembered there's a way of kind of erasing the real opposition to it right there there, there are these images of yeah there were a few bad folks in a particular place and a few bad police chiefs 
and things like that, but not really understanding that while not everyone was out there with, with fire hoses and police dogs, there still was a great deal of opposition to the civil rights movement. What are some other components of the master narrative? Yeah. Um, he explains how they say that uh, it was reduced more to a protest as opposed to activism. Mm-hmm. And what, anybody want to help me with that? What does that mean, protest versus activism? Because those two things sound very similar to me. What is the difference between um, sort of simplifying the master narrative to be about protest but not activism? Yeah. I think when the civil rights movement is like overly simplified sometimes in like elementary school classrooms and stuff like that, it's kind of viewed as like a bunch of people coming together at like the right place at the right time, kind mm-hmm. of as opposed to like a long struggle that ended up with like people getting more rights or mm-hmm. desegregation. Yeah, yeah. This idea of protests or mass protests, I like the way you put it, sort of a bunch of people who just happen to show up in the right place at the right time, as opposed to very strategic planning that went into even the big events, but also just the small local grassroots level work, that there was a great deal of, of strategizing, of organizing, and that it was not as simple as it seemed where it just sort of happened, right? Any other components to the way that we understand the civil rights through the master narrative. Yeah. Absolutely. A major component of the master narrative of what we think of as a civil rights movement really has these very neat bookends. And it essentially starts with the Brown versus Board of Education case or maybe Rosa Parks's act of civil disobedience in Montgomery. And it ends either at the Voting Rights Act in 1965 or certainly with the death of Martin Luther King in 1968. And and while that is a moment of intensification in the social movement that is what we think of as a civil rights movement, it completely ignores what we've been learning about in class so far, that long history of black activism before. And then it also gives a sense that the, the issues that people were fighting for in the civil rights movement sort of magically end with the passing of certain legislation and that there's no need for things to go forward, right? So that becomes part of it. Any other things that we miss here with the master narrative? It's a big narrative. I mean, you all just, all the examples were showing is showing you how deep and pervasive this is. Yeah. Um, people tend to forget like the efforts of ordinary people and just like the struggles that um, local communities went through to mm-hmm. like, through the movement. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There's so much of an emphasis on leaders, particularly male leaders, particularly even, we can even simplify, there's so much of an emphasis on on Martin Luther King and the men that surround him that it it really makes it see, and and the people who are in these marches and in these pictures become nameless and faceless without really demonstrating the very active role that ordinary citizens, ordinary people in local communities were doing to try to make things better. Any other stuff? I think we've got a lot of things. Yeah. In the first um, sentence, it says that the relationship between races and the South were oppressive, and it kind of just limits it to the South mm-hmm. and doesn't bring into account that things were happening in the North, too, mm-hmm. and it's just as bad. Yeah, yeah. Part of the master narrative not only narrows the chronology of what we think of as a civil rights movement, but the geography of it, right? That it becomes um, just focused on what is happening in the South, as if racial inequality only existed in the South, and as if the um, kind of fighting against racial inequality is only limited in the South, right? So so again, these are all part of this this much bigger narrative, what, what Payne is calling this master narrative of the movement, that there's some truth to some of the things that are in there, right? There, there is something important about Montgomery. There was something important about Martin Luther King. But if we just sort of think about the, mo- um, the movement and only remember it in these very narrow terms, we're going to lose more than we actually learn. So, so I want us all to think a little bit about why we think the civil rights movement 
um, has been remembered in this way, right? Um, and, and it's not something that I think is is a very narrow depiction. If you look even just recently, we talked about this. The 50th anniversary of Martin Luther King's assassination was just commemorated in April. And we talked about the ways that that the memory of that uh, is sort of playing into these master narratives, the way that policymakers play into it, the way that educational institutions often play into it. Why do you think that is, right? What, why, what do you think is at stake in the way that we remember the civil rights movement? Mm-hmm. Well, you kind of already touched on this before when you said, or well, I guess Payne talks about it, about how um, they tend to look, or people tend to look at the civil rights movement as like large-scale traumatic events. It was kind of like, oh, yeah, that one police chief did something bad, or like those people in the South did something bad, but they don't, really want to accept the fact that this was like a day-to-day constant like piece of life for people mm-hmm. and I guess I think like personally things that stems from like a lack of wanting to take responsibility like white people don't want to accept the fact that like they had a part in it and mm-hmm. so the lack of responsibility makes the narrative change like mm-hmm. as they retell the story. Mm-hmm. I think that point about day-to-day everyday both experiences of racial inequality, but also everyday acts of resistance against it is something that gets gets missed out, right? That there is a place for large-scale events. There is a place for mass protests, but we can't do that at the expense of thinking about how people's lives were impacted by racial inequality and by activism on a day-to-day basis. Anyone else on why we think the, the civil rights narrative has often been depicted in these particular ways? Yeah. To go off of what she said, I feel that, <clears throat> excuse me, I feel that, like, America has this overall sense of not wanting to seem like the bad guy, just going off of a broad overall representation. America was known for being the place of freedom and the American dream, so for them to take responsibility on the bad things that happened up until and during the civil rights movement and even on up until today, they always want to look at the positive side of the story. So, yes, it's so great we're celebrating Martin Luther King, who not began, but was a big person in this change. But in reality, they don't look at all of the negative sides of what Americans did back then and what they're doing right now. Mm -hmm. And think about the context, this idea of perception becomes really important. And think about the context in which the emergence of the civil rights movement is happening in the 1950s, right? What, what was the larger geopolitical context that was happening that made the, the notion of how Americans are being presented become even more dire? Anybody remember that context, that wider context? Yeah, Julian? Mm-hmm. The Cold War, right? The Cold War and the way that it framed this this um, narrative of good versus evil, where the United States was supposed to and wanting to come out looking um, more positive than the Soviet Union, for example, that this question about American perception isn't merely about people wanting to feel good about themselves and the narratives we portray, but also has very real geopolitical and foreign policy implications, right? America's perception impacts America's role in being a superpower, right? So so all of these things, and, and, and that doesn't end with the Cold War, right? It, it continues. And so this is part of why that narrative sort of developed the way it does and why it continues to develop. And so what our key question that we want to look at for today and begin to examine is how does centering the civil rights activism of black women disrupt and change this master narrative of the civil rights movement. Okay, so so we, we begin, we establish some of the contours of this master narrative. We've thought through a bit about why the master narrative may have developed the way it does and, and the kinds of utility that it, it functions um, for for people. So, so now we want to try to see if if we look at the movement from a different perspective, does that begin to provide some insight for us into thinking about the mass narrative and ultimately thinking about the civil rights movement differently? Um, and so before we do that, I want us to, to think a bit um, about, and this is something that will require us to think a little bit back over some of the things that we have learned so far, some of the things that we've read and talked about in class. But I want us to think a little bit about what were some of the unique ways that black women, both in the North and the South, 
experience the perils and challenges of segregation and racial discrimination, right? So if we're looking at this moment in the 1950s um, and even sort of broadening out to really this period during segregation, I want us to think about some of the the ways that gender and racial um, discrimination and oppression intersect to give black women, both in the North and the South, a different experience um, of, of, of the period of segregation. And, and when I'm trying to get us to think about that, it, I'm not trying to get us into what, what some scholars have called like an oppression Olympics, where I'm like, black women had it better and worse, and black men had it worse and better. That, that really is not a very useful thing to do. What we can address is that they experienced it differently, that there were some issues because of the way that gender is constructed and experienced, um, ways that African-American women are experiencing this period of segregation differently than black men are. And I want us, when we think about these challenges, to not just think about the ways that African-American women are experiencing um, segregation just vis-a-vis their relationship to whites, but also how um, internal dynamics within black communities are also um, constraining black women in ways that perhaps black men are not, right? So, so think about our readings that we've had so far. Think about the, the memoir, Coming of Age in Mississippi, that we've been reading to think about life in the rural South and in the civil rights movement. Think even about the film that we saw um, about the murder of Emmett Till and the role that Mamie Till plays. Um, can, can you think of something, and even our discussion about the Montgomery bus boycott that we had earlier. So, so what are some of the, the, the different ways that black women are experiencing segregation than black men are? Because I think that'll help us think about what kind of activism black women begin to engage in. So what, what are some differences? Can we think of anything? Mm-hmm. Kimberly and Olivia. Uh, yeah, one of the things when you're talking about Ann Moody, her mom was forced to kind of leave the kids at home, so she had the pressures of having to carry on her domestic duties for her own family, but then also had to um, leave the family to go work, and so that like unfairly you know, mm-hmm. treated her. Yeah, absolutely. This this idea that um, black women are, are are responsible in many cases, particularly about the gender norms of this time, of caring for their homes in particular ways, caring for children, but also having um, the very real constraints of the economic injustice and the economic disenfranchisement that black families have. And so just being able to negotiate their economic duties with their d- duties at home for child rearing and child care does put some particular strains on black women um, in segregation. What else? I think. Um, I wanted to add to what we were talking about yesterday. Well, two days ago, I mean. And we were talking about how the bus boycott actually started. Um, black women were usually um, domestic, I'd say domestic workers mm-hmm. in white homes. So the towns weren't really adjacent, but they were pretty far in distance. So they would have to take buses to go over there. So um, they would be mistreated and, like, kind of taunted and just harassed almost from it. And sometimes, like, they would miss work because, like, the bus driver just wouldn't take them. Mm-hmm. And so it just increased, like, the problems that mm-hmm. was going on. Yeah, absolutely. The, the very limited um, economic um, and labor options that black women had, which for, you know, the majority of the time of segregation um, were black women working in domestic service in the homes of whites. And because of what we know about residential segregation patterns, black communities and white communities were not adjacent to one another, just as you said, and were often across town. And so black women were usually the ones within communities that that we're using public transportation more. Um, and so because of that, they're the ones who are experiencing the, the brutality, the violence, the indignities of, of riding these segregated buses and being harassed by bus drivers and being harassed by, um, by other patrons. And so they're experiencing segregation in their everyday life in a different way or a more intense way um, than, than men are on transportation just because they're using it more often. Any other examples? Mm-hmm. I was just kind of like going off of that actually. I was just thinking about like the particular vulnerability that black women were in because they were in white homes. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we talked about like the sexual violence that they faced, especially from like 
white men who were in those homes. Um, and it's just like because they're kind of so close, like mm-hmm. they're directly working in the homes of their oppressors, that that kind of opens the door for more subtle but also more obvious forms of like harassment violence. Yeah, right. That these these kinds of labor conditions, you're absolutely right, are, are putting black women um, in a very vulnerable place that they're working in these very intimate environments where um, any kind of accusation around sexual abuse or sexual assault, um, because of the power dynamics, they're not going to be taken seriously. And I think that this point raises a larger point of something we've been talking and thinking about this semester as well, really even going back to the period period right after Reconstruction, where we're talking about how sexualized violence in the form of rape and sexual assault becomes a tool in the arsenal of violence, right, that, that whites are using to keep African-Americans um, in fear and intimidated, right? This, this extra dimension that, that violence is a part of that. But when we're talking about black women's experiences, um, the threat of, of sexualized violence becomes even more intensified. And so, again, this is not, you know, sort of juggling who had a better or worse, but that is an area that we need to think about more explicitly um, if we're centering black women with that, right? And, and thinking about the civil rights movement as a battle to deal with issues of sexual violence. I know we're, we're, we think now in our 21st century around the Me Too movement and questions about sexual harassment and violence, but what we've seen through the life of people like Recy Taylor and others is that black women were centering the issue of sexualized violence during the the civil rights movement. It's often very absent from the master narrative, but it's there. Um, we talked about last time how Rosa Parks herself was someone who was going through the Deep South, getting narratives from black women who had been assaulted and trying to think about ways to mobilize against that. Right. So, so this issue of sexualized violence is very important. Any other ways that black women's experiences uh, may have impacted them? Um, we, we have the segregation, excuse me, the residential patterns. We also can think about um, the ways that black women's behavior was often policed in ways that black men's behavior was not, um, and, and how that policing of behavior about what it meant to be a proper woman impacted who black communities were willing to rally behind. The example of Claudette Colvin, a young woman who was pregnant and unmarried, who did the very same thing that Rosa Parks did, but because she was seen as someone who had a past that would not look good to a greater public, people did not rally uh, behind her. And again, this is something that that black women faced in ways that were different. Um, and then, of course, what the, one of the things the master narrative reminds us is just how much uh, male power and leadership was valorized within the movement in ways that obscured and ignored um, the, the very real work that black women had been doing. Right. So so media attention, for example, um, would, would always be drawn to the men of the movement as they're doing work, the Martin Luther Kings and others, but would not necessarily go to women like Ella Baker, who was a longtime activist who helped to nurture and birth the student movement, right? Or, or Diane Nash, um, who was a leader in the sit-in movement and the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, who held leadership positions. Women like Dorothy Height, who was the head of the National Council of Negro Women, who wanted to have a voice, right? So, so the master narrative and, and the way that, that men were seen as being the only ones who had something to say and garnering the media attention obscured women from these particular narratives. Um, and so, so I think it's important for us to, to think about um, the ways that physical violence, sexual violence, black women's roles um, as, as mothers, um, um, in the movement, black women's economic and labor constraints, how all of those things in their everyday life help to propel them toward activism that looks different than much of the activism that's in the master narrative. So what we're going to do now is, is begin to look at our readings and look at some specific examples of black women's activism. We're going to look at Anne Moody, um, and her memoir, Coming of Age in Mississippi. And then we're also going to look at a chapter that you all read from uh, my book, Beauty Shop Politics. We're going to look at chapter five, which is talking about the civil rights movement. So I want us to start with Moody. Actually, I want us to start with a place where 
the work and research that I've done intersects with Ann Moody's. And I don't know if you've caught it, um, but there's, I open up the chapter um, in my book referring to an experience that Ann Moody had while she was in a sit-in. And I'll just read very briefly um, from an excerpt of it. If you want to follow along in Moody, it's on page 293 in this edition of it. And so this is after Moody was in a, uh, uh, a sit-in that turned violent. And she says, before we were taken back to campus, I wanted to get my hair washed. It was stiff with dried mustard, ketchup, and sugar. I stopped in at a beauty shop across the street from the NAACP office. I didn't have on any shoes because I had lost them when I was dragged across the floor at Woolworths. My stockings were sticking to my legs from the mustard that had dried on them. The hairdresser took one look at me and said, my land, you were in that sit-in, huh? Yes, I answered. Do you have time to wash my hair and style it? Right away, she said, and she meant right away. There were three other ladies already waiting, but they seemed glad to let me go ahead of them. The hairdresser was real nice. She even took off my stockings and washed my legs while my hair was drying. And I remember when I was, was working on this, this book project, I, I thought this was such a powerful scene and a powerful moment to get us to think about black women within the civil rights movement. Here we have Ann Moody, whose body is literally embattled, right? She was on the front lines at a sit-in movement trying to get African-Americans better access and equal access to a Woolworth lunch counter. And she gets ketchup and mustard and spat upon and racial epithets hurled at her and all of those things. And the first place that she decides to go is sort of a bizarre place. It may be even a foolish place um, to a beauty shop. And she knew that she could get her hair washed there, right? I, and we understand that, right? Like, she's literally has stuff caked in her hair. She, she feels filthy. She didn't even have her shoes, like she said, because she had to run away from what was happening in the Woolworth. But I think the way that she describes her treatment once she gets into the salon is something that can help us think about black women and black women's roles and the importance of institutions that are um, sort of owned by and run by black women in sustaining women like Moody who were on the front lines of the, Moody, of the movement, right? She knew that in the beauty shop, it would be a safe place. It would be a refuge for her, a place where she could not only have her hair washed, but the way that she talks about the gentle pampering by the beautician and even the way that she refers to how the other women who were in the shop let her go ahead of them shows that it also was a place where in many ways she could have her soul restored. And I think that that's something that we need to think about a lot as we're reading memoirs and, and seeing film. And even when you're watching those old newsreels of, of people on the front lines of the civil rights movement, and we think of them as kind of nameless, faceless people in a black and white photo without fully considering the, the psychological tool and damage that these kinds of things are putting not just on their bodies, but also on their minds and spirits. And so the beauty shop becomes a place of refuge for her. Um, and I use that as an introduction to get us to think about how the beauty shop wasn't just uh, a place of refuge, but also became a place where activism itself could be planned and could be enacted. And so I, I want us to talk about that a little bit. Um, but I, I thought it might be useful to just, since this is you have the weird and maybe um, unwelcome opportunity where uh, for the first time this semester, you actually have the author of one of your pieces in front of you, who also was your professor, so that could get a little weird, but we're all cool now. So, you know, you all can ask me anything and, and feel free to use the, 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 the strategies of critique that I have been training you with all semester on my own work. That actually, nothing would make me happier than that. Um, but, but I thought it might be useful to talk a little bit about how I kind of stumbled into this work on beauticians and the civil rights movement, right? It's, it's sort of an odd thing. It's something I never envisioned doing. It almost doesn't even make sense, um, except once I got into the sources. So as a graduate student, I was really interested 
in black women's activism, just sort of in a general sense. And I was reading everything I could get my hands on about the topic. And I also began to do archival work and primary sources and just kind of learning, right, that that process of research as you're doing a topic. Um, And then I began to notice something sort of weird but interesting, that many of the women who were mentioned in both primary and secondary sources, particularly those who were um, sources that were looking at local and grassroots community organizing and activism, that many of the women had a similar occupation. They were beauticians. And and I didn't really think much of it at first. I kind of looked at it. I was like, all right, that's kind of interesting, but maybe not. I'm looking for the real story, right? I'm looking for the story that that, that seemed juicier, that seemed more important. Um, But then I, I began to think about it even more. And this question about the master narrative, thinking about how it can impact even the way that we read and understand our our sources when we're doing research. I was also at the time reading an article by a historian named Darlene Clark Hine called The Age of Madam C.J. Walker. And as many of you know, Madam C.J. Walker was um, a black beauty pioneer from the early 20th century. She creates this beauty company and this beauty industry that literally, um, you know, employs thousands and thousands of women. She has a factory. She's selling products all over the African diaspora. She creates really is one of the pioneers in what we think of as the black beauty industry. And in the article that Hine wrote, she poses a really interesting question. And she says, why is it that we think of the early 20th century as the age of Booker T. Washington, right? And we've studied Washington and and him as as an educational leader, as a sort of, you know, was considered the, the top black leader of his day. And one of the things that Hines says is, what would happen, right? This is almost a a question very similar to what Charles Payne is trying to get us to do about rethinking the master narrative of the movement. She says, what would happen if we centered the experience of Madam C.J. Walker in that moment and called it the age of Madam C.J. Walker instead of calling it the age of Booker T. Washington? What might we learn from doing that? And, and I took that to heart and I, I then said, OK, if I center the experiences of these black beauticians in the movement, how will that change what we know or what we think we know about the civil rights movement? And, and that's essentially where the project ended up going um, and where the research um, ended up taking me. Um, and so even once I got into it, the things that were happening among black beauticians in the 1950s and 60s were particularly um, interesting to me, right? Because we see everyone, right? All the key people who are part of our master narrative of the civil rights movement, people like Martin Luther King, talking about black beauticians as being central to the civil rights movement, right? So that even shows us that even when we're following the people who are part of the master narrative, when they're saying things and doing things that that don't fit into our master narrative, we ignore them, right? I was shocked to find in 1957, King sort of at, you know, at the beginning of his kind of ascendancy as a black leader is addressing a national group of black beauticians, right? Um, On a topic called the role of beauticians in the contemporary struggle for freedom. This is King, right? completely missing from the narrative. We see leaders in the Democratic Party making statements like, if you get a beautician engaged into your, um, into your, your candidate's um, campaign, then you found a gem because they can make all these things happen, right? So these are people who are central to our ideas about the movement, but they're talking about women and they're talking about activism in ways that really aren't legible to us. And so we often kind of researchers have often left them out and, and, and made them marginalized. So, so I want us to think about this. Right. Um, the article has has a lot of the, the chapter, um, I should say, has a lot of evidence of the, the work that black beauticians were doing and what they were doing in beauty shops. Um, and we're going to talk about some of that. But but just sort of as you've read it, why do you think black beauticians were so effect, effective as activists and grassroots leaders? What was unique about their position and what they had access to that made the kind of activism that we'll talk about in a minute possible? Yeah. 
Um, on page 119 of the reading, you talk about um, a beautician who uh, the police chief comes to her place of work and is trying to intimidate her into, or intimidate uh, her husband's manager into firing her husband and all types of things. And she is like afforded the ability to kind of talk back to him because as like a small business owner, as a business owner, she like has that um, economic like free will basically. Mm -hmm. Like she, she can like she doesn't have to worry about her employer firing her for saying something unsavory, or mm -hmm. and she basically has the freedom to speak her mind. So I think that's powerful, especially like in that type of social movement. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. So the example that you raised is a girl in a Vera Piggy, um, who right, her and her husband were very active in Mississippi in the NAACP in voter registration movements. And they, they get hauled in. The police chief is going after them. And he keeps threatening her husband and saying, we're going to get you fired. We're going to get you fired. And Vera Piggy, as a beautician, as a business owner who owned her own business. And, and think about it, too. Not just that she owned her own business, but who were the clients in her business? Who were her clients? Mm -hmm. Other black women, right? Um, even her manufacturing, this is at the time where um, black women, um, beauty manufacturers who were supplying her products, all this stuff. So she wasn't, there was no one the police chief could go to and say, fire her because she owned her own business. She was economically autonomous. And so that positioned her and other beauticians well to be able to take risks because they did not have fear of retribution, because um, women and men would lose their jobs all the time if their civil rights activity was found out. So that's definitely a big reason. What are some other reasons? Yeah. One, um, you mentioned how one of the politicians said that he aims to mobilize beauticians because they're like missionaries. Mm -hmm. um, and everyone that they come in contact with, they make voting um, as important to them as like God. So mm -hmm. their proximity to their customers and mm -hmm. other people in their community really allows them to be like missionaries, mm -hmm. to spread the word and to spread um, activism. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's this really sort of instant. Any of us who have ever been to a beauty salon or have, particularly those who have, may have a long-term kind of relationship with one particular stylist, there's a certain kind of intimacy and bond that develops between a hairstylist and their client. And, and there often develops a kind of trust between them. And so beauticians had a great deal of credibility so that when they are sort of spreading the, the, the good news about voting and voter registration and civil rights activities, um, their clients are very receptive to it in ways that maybe if someone else told them this, they would not be as receptive, right? And so, so that kind of intimacy and bond and relationship that they have is also part of what is building that. W what else? Any other ways why beauticians might have been well-suited for this kind of civil rights work? Yeah. Uh, well, I just like, just like the physical act of like sitting in a chair and like having something sharp close to your head you're kind of in like a vulnerable <laughs> position like I you like if someone's cutting your hair like it's pretty or with black beauty shops it's, it's worse than scissors like, at your ear like yeah. a hot flaming a comb that has been dipped in flames coming behind your head right you gotta trust <laughs> the person who has this, these materials mm -hmm. so there's already kind of a sense of like vulnerability and I think in that it comes like like you said there's a like form of trust mm -hmm. but also like that relationship is important kind of like this person's taking care of you mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and in that way like makes people feel a lot more comfortable especially in an environment where you weren't where like being comfortable wasn't something that was common for black mm -hmm. women. Mm -hmm. They were working in homes that were un obviously uncomfortable. Even when they went home, they had other duties. Like, this was kind of like a safe space for them to go mm -hmm. and, like, be taken care of. And that, so that kind of, like, fosters the trusting relationship. And then when that person is telling you, like, about these, like you said before, about like, civil rights and voting and all that, they're kind of like more inclined to listen. So they're, they have like a specific, just the role I think is super mm -hmm. interesting because yeah. not only like the physical position that they're in, but right. just like they have a unique kind of like on your Trust. shoulder. Yeah, like, you're kind of trusting yeah. them. And that's why that example of Ann Moody going to the salon, I think really underscores that, right? That, that you know, she was so embattled and, and really in a low place, but knew that that was a place, one of the few places that she could be cared for. And so that also continues to develop trust in that as well. Yes. This goes back to what you were 
saying earlier about how women's behaviors were policed in certain ways, and I'd say this would say that uh, black beauticians were really important to the movement because of the presentability of their clients. Mm-hmm. I think uh, Dr. King in, in your uh, chapter said something about look like you're going to church mm-hmm. when you're going to participate in these in acts of this movement and that the beauty, the beauty problem is where you go for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there, there's a way that and, and um, self-presentation was a really effective strategy within the movement, right? And, and again, going back to our earlier points about the master narrative and this idea that it was just these kind of mass protests and people would just kind of show up and things would happen. They were instructed when showing up at, at rallies and marches and movements and sit-ins on the specifics down to how to dress, right? And that instruction about dress neatly and modestly as if you're going to church was about that, right? It was about coming to, and if you look, when we look at images and and videos and stills of the civil rights movement, and you see how these college students are dressed going to a Woolworth counter where, like Ann Moody, they are going to leave with their clothes ruined, with their hair, all of that. But that that was a strategy of looking a particular way. And part of that was about getting the media's attention of looking at these very well-dressed, well-groomed, um, well-behaved black people on the front lines getting brutalized, right? And, and you're absolutely right that that part of that process of getting there, at least for women, and at this particular time, was about a particular kind of hair grooming um, that happens in black beauty shops. And so literally, black beauticians are preparing people for the front lines in that way as well. Um, what about the beauty shop? So we talked a bit about beauticians um, and the role that they play that made it very um, easy for them to become civil rights leaders and activists. But what about the space of the beauty shop? One of the ways, one of the reasons why um, they also were very effective is that they had ownership, literally, of a space, an institutional space, and we can't underestimate the importance of institutional space. And I know you all are my very 21st century young college students where uh, I think sometimes we, we don't appreciate how important physical space is because so much of what we do is in this kind of digital world. But, but the ability to get people and to have a space to get people in the same room and be together and be protected is important, right? And so, so what are some of the, the other ways that a beauty shop in particular would serve to be a powerful political institution. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the beauty shop like fostered a safe space for um, women to discuss issues on civil rights and also maybe discuss more extreme issues on civil rights, mm-hmm. um, such as um, they didn't always agree. It's said in here on page 103 that they didn't always agree with the ministers or the people who are often seen in a positive light mm-hmm. um, within the civil rights movement. And they could discuss their um, discrepancies and like problems that they had with them mm-hmm. and uh, different points of views on how to move forward with the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, right? The, the way that the beauty shop space, right, which is this black woman-owned space where women are, it, it was different than the church environment, right, where black women may not have been the ones who were in leadership positions to be able to direct the conversations that were going on there, right? Um, and also, and this is something to think about as well, think about um, for those who were in opposition to civil rights. Churches were very much on their radar. Um, and we know that because they bombed churches. They attacked churches. They, they firebombed the homes of black ministers and people who were connected to it. That was a very kind of um, visible institution. And so you're absolutely right that the beauty shop, as this kind of alternative space, allowed for conversations of a more radical sort about the civil rights movement because they were completely under the radar. And one of the things I always say um, is that, you know, for, for just about every um, black person or ally who was involved in the civil rights movement, there is an FBI file on them. That's just fact. This is not a radical thing. I mean, FBI was monitoring 
you know, the tapes on Martin Luther King, all of that. I mean, every from leaders up top to the grassroots leaders. There are FBI files that you can look and see on them. I have not been able to find an FBI file on a beautician, even though these beauticians were involved in much of the same work, in some cases, even more radical work than those who were being surveilled. When they do appear, sometimes, um, for example, Bernice Robinson, who's in the article, which we'll talk about in a moment, she, her cousin appears in the record as a, a, in the FBI records, and she's identified, as I told in the article, as in some unidentified woman, right? And so there's a way that because the beauty shop is viewed as frivolous, right? We're nothing. What's happening there? A bunch of women in there gossiping, right? Like that's our perception of what happens in beauty shops. It's kind of diminishing of that. They were able to really flourish as political sites because they were perceived as not doing anything important. And they use that disadvantage to their advantage, right? And so in the way that churches and other kinds of institutions were on the radar, beauty shops were able to slip under them. They were underestimated and that worked to their advantage. So let's talk about what was actually happening in these shops um, and think about them within this larger context of the civil rights movement or the black freedom struggle. And again, going back to our point about the, the, the master narrative, that, that if we're focusing on the master narrative, it seemed as though the, the most important thing was about um, getting laws changed. And laws, getting laws changed is important. But when we look at the activism of black beauticians in particular, we begin to see a much more complex and much more nuanced story about what the civil rights movement was about to people on the everyday. So what are some of the, the issues, some of the concerns that black beauticians tackled um, from the, their position as beauticians and from their space as beauty shops? And examples, we can look at, you know, any of the women in the chapter, Bernice Robinson, Ruby Blackburn. We've talked a little bit already about Vera Piggy. What are some of the things that, um, that were important to them, the issues that were? Mm-hmm. Uh, voting registration, mm-hmm. mainly, especially Robinson, um, who, one, offered to take in voter registration cards to her house so that the whites in the neighborhood wouldn't know who was registering. Mm -hmm. Um, And then she became a teacher to teach people how to read the paragraph you need to Mm -hmm. become voter registered. Yeah, yeah. Um, Bernice Robinson really had this, um, used her salon and her influence in really powerful ways like you outlined. Um, I love it. One of an observer of her salon, um, and I talk about this in the the, um, article, in the chapter called her salon a center for all sorts of subversive activity, uh, which I love um, thinking about a beauty salon and some of the things you're talking about that she allowed her home to be a repository for people who wanted, for example, to join membership in the NAACP, which after we after the the um, Brown versus Board of Education court case, which we talked about last class, was illegal. Remember, I talked about how many states made membership in the NAACP illegal. South Carolina was one of them. And so if any black person wanted to join the NAACP, they could be fined or arrested for that. So what many women would do would be to have their mail from the NAACP sent to Bernice Robinson's home. Um, Because again, one of the frontline attacks on African-Americans was to try to fire them from their jobs, was to try to intimidate their employers to fire them if they were known to be engaged in civil rights activity. So they would send them to Robinson Salon. And as she says in the piece, she said, you know, I didn't have to worry about losing my job because, again, for the same reason, she had that economic autonomy. And she also used her salon as a school. She turned it into a citizenship education school where she not only taught um, ways to try to help African-Americans register to vote, um, which was always a very tricky and complicated thing, even if you could actually read the paragraph, then the registrar would say, well, no, you didn't read it properly or things like that. But what she did is that she used that as a really as a way to educate people in her community more generally. So she opens up citizenship education to teach basic literacy skills, basic math skills, basic accounting skills, things that people in her community needed, right? Very practical things. And this is something that I think marks the work of black beauticians 
in the South is that while they were interested in things like voting and changing laws, they were also interested in things like basic nutrition and health, which is part of what Bernice Robinson does when she gathers a group of black beauticians to support the building of a tent city in Fayette County, Tennessee, for sharecroppers who were evicted off their land for engaging in activism. She wanted to provide not just a home for them, but places where they and their family could get nutrition, where they could get health care, where they could get child care. Very kind of nuts and bolts, practical needs. Um, Or Ruby Parks Blackburn of Atlanta, who used her position as a beautician to advocate for getting bus service extended into black neighborhoods, was an early advocate of what we think about as um, combating environmental racism, which is this practice of companies and corporations dumping chemicals in communities of color. Um, And so she was an early advocate for that. So again, just thinking about how these beauticians are, are working to deal with very nuts and bolts things. And when we center their experiences, it it disrupts the master narrative for us because it is forcing us to think about the civil rights movement beyond the national. It's forcing us to think about not just the sympathetic government's response, but how African-Americans are organizing on grassroots levels to try to make their day-to-day lives better. Um, It also gets us to rethink the goals of the civil rights movement. Their emphasis on meeting pressing and practical needs for those who are most vulnerable in their communities was actually very much at the heart of what we think of as a civil rights movement. In fact, I would say that was the heart of the movement. Um, yes, laws and all those things are to protect that. But, but I think the master narrative does not allow for us to think about the ways that the goals of the movement were about meeting these pressing and practical needs, particularly for those who are most vulnerable in black communities. Um, Also, um, the the work of black beauticians in the movement disrupt this idea of spontaneous protest because they were creative, they were innovative, and they were strategic, Um, all things that were very important. And it also gets us to rethink the role and the importance of the media in the civil rights movement, which was something that was very important. And we see um, organizations and leaders skillfully using the media. But part of what made beauticians so successful was the fact that they flew beyond underneath the radar, that they were not the ones most prominent out there in front of the television screen and recognizable. It was their anonymity, actually, that actually made their activism successful. Um, And they also remind us that there's no real easy wins in the black freedom struggle, right? that if we focus on checking off some laws and some bills, then it's easy to kind of look at this movement as something that they were clear winners and clear losers. The issues that they were advocating for are a constant reminder to us that that much of what they started is still left unfinished. And so my hope is, as we looked at the, the role of black beauticians, and, and sort of think about them and think about the, the activism of black women in general as a way of disrupting the master narrative. It will cause us to think about the civil rights movement differently. But I also hope that it causes us, and you know this is always my thing about this class, that we, it's important for us to study the past for the past sake. Absolutely. I'm a historian. I believe in that. Um, but also, because the way we remember the civil rights movement actually tells us more about ourselves in the 21st century than it does about what was actually happening in the 21st century. I hope that when we look back at people like Ann Moody and women like those black beauticians, that it would actually inspire us and challenge us to look for new possibilities in the everyday to make an impact, right? To look at these personal and community spaces that are often overlooked and think about how they could possibly become uh, a part of um, larger struggles to make our world better. And so really their creativity, their use of what was at hand, their willingness to look at their limitations but use that as a positive is something that I think we can all um, aspire to when we think about freedom struggles. So uh, 
Um, any other final questions or comments about beauticians? What were, what were some of the things that you learned or that may have surprised you most about, uh, about it? I'm sure most of you had never seen a civil rights um, um, text that centers them. So was there anything that surprised you or shocked you or anything that you found um, encouraging or problematic? Yeah. <laughs> I think the thing that surprised me is, like you said, how there aren't any like FBI files on the beauticians themselves. I guess I'm just wondering like how they never caught on, especially when people are like sending mail mm-hmm. to the salons and they're doing all these things and it's like kind of like an open secret, I guess, among like the black population. But mm-hmm. I guess were they just, was it just because they were so removed from like black life that that's why they just didn't see mm-hmm. those things happening? Well, or? think about that. I'm going to pose that to everyone else. I mean, reading what you read, you know, why do you think they were so successful at flying under the radar when there's all this activity that's going on that was documented and, and I was able to find as a researcher 50 years later, you know, um, it wasn't hidden. It was sort of hidden in plain sight. But but why do you think it was so hidden? Why do you think that was so effective? Yeah. Um, I think that the black woman is typically undervalued and undermined, even within our own community sometimes. So, uh, so much so that, you know, you see a lot of men come to the front when it comes to civil rights activism. And it was rumored that some of those men were uh, misogynist. Uh, So I don't know if, you know, maybe like other people or, you know, the majority of Americans that viewed our movement and looked at the men at the front and just thought, okay, well, those are probably the people who are advocating, who are putting these pieces of the puzzle together. You know, you don't really see too many women in the front of the civil rights movement, um, with the exception of like the Black Panther movement, where you saw them push more women to the front. So I think it's also some of us kind of how some black men and black women kind of viewed each other as well, to the point where that's how the public perceived it as women not playing as much as a, in, of a role in it as they did. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yep. Also, any other thoughts on that? Of, of why sort of the, this extensive history of activism was hidden from, from public in a lot of ways? Yeah, two more comments over here. Start with Julie and then we'll come up with Sally. I'd say just because some jobs are just often ignored when it comes to political activism, so when anyone would hear, oh, hey, something's going on in that beauty parlor, they would just immediately zone out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which I think is powerful. I mean, I think that's something that we all could learn from, right? That the spaces that seem the most frivolous can actually have the potential to have some of the most radical potential in it for the very reason because they are so easily dismissed. Right. I might even think to a certain extent, uh, not a perfect parallel, but a similar one when we think about social media um, as something that we all probably waste way too much of our time on and all of that, um, but also has been used to great effect by organizations like Black Lives Matter, like um, by by groups who are are, are rallying, like the students in Parkland, Florida and students around the country who are rallying um, on behalf of gun control and other things or the Me Too hashtag. Right. That there are ways that even what is most frivolous um, can actually serve um, a potential. And so I I think that's something whenever I think about this research, it it constantly kind of challenges me to think about that, you know, that for the things that are important to me that I want to see changed, what spaces, even those who may that may be dismissed that I might be able to use to effectively make that change. We'll take one more comment. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I was that's basically what I was just going to say, how like which kind of makes me like love it even more is the fact that it was, like, so easily dismissed, and they're like, oh, they're frivolous women who, mm-hmm. they can't control anything. Mm-hmm. So they yeah, just, yeah but stuff. really, and so that's, they're kind of, like, easily dismissed, and they kind of, like, took that and, like, made it into something, like, they took that opportunity of them being dismissed to make it even more powerful by being sort of, like, incognito, mm-hmm. like, making this political change, and I just think, like, the, it's kind of, like, so beneficial on so many levels for it being beneficial to the individual as like black that's a place for black women to feel you know safe and kind of like recharge i guess um like in the the, their political climate but also like on a like national scale it's Mm -hmm. like the like policy that they were able to affect so Mm -hmm. i don't know um i also think like maybe uh a cultural difference may have like contributed a little bit because Speaking from just my own personal experience, like, I don't think, um, 
like the average white person places like a super high importance on a barbershop. Like I could go to any barbershop. There's like five barbershops in my town and like I have no allegiance to one <laughs> barbershop. And I think a lot of people wouldn't necessarily understand like maybe because I, as far as I understand like the way that you have to care for your hair and stuff is different. So mm -hmm. I think a lot of people will, maybe didn't understand like either how much time someone might spend in a barbershop or, or like the importance of like your allegiance to a particular barbershop mm -hmm. might play and like how that could play a role so mm -hmm. people could easily overlook that I think. Yeah, yeah, and I think you're right. I think, I mean, there, there are a lot, of, I think the, the cultural differences are, are very important in this. Um, one, in terms of the, you know, how much is getting done in a beauty shop, part of why it was so effective was that there was a captive audience that was there for a long time, right? Um, that, that often the, the, the hairstyling and all that would take most of your day or half of your day and so people are in there for a long time building that. Um, and also, I think part of the cultural difference as to why in black communities, barbershops and beauty shops, even perhaps still to this day, have a, a different kind of <laughs> currency is about thinking about some of the same things we saw in this article about black space and hidden space, right? Um, thinking about um, when you are within a society and culture where you're not dominating, that the places where you get to gather um, are, are, are unconventional and, and take on an even greater importance, right? And so we can think about, and I think one of the things to think about is how beauty shops and even barbershops, the interesting thing about barbershops is that they were surveilled by the FBI and they were often sent informants sent into those spaces looking for things and sometimes they'd find stuff but I always say is that if they sent them to beauty shops, they would have been a lot. They would have had a bigger, much better report to write. But again, thinking of the gendered component of difference, that we have to assume that something's happening there and something's happening not. So, so my hope is that when we talked about this today, instead of thinking about the civil rights movement, that looking at the real example of black beauticians helps us to unravel this master narrative. And as we continue for the rest of the semester going forward to the contemporary period, we can think about how some of what was started in this period is unfinished and that people continue to take up this battle, um, but also gets us to think about when we encounter narratives about the civil rights movement in our public spaces, in our discourse, in our public policy, in our monuments, in our conversations, that this has equipped us with some more tools to be able to try to dismantle and pick away at it. All right. Thank you all for a good class. Thanks. You're watching Lectures in